0: Hello and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. In 1963, archaeologists from the Corning Museum of Glass and the University of Missouri began excavations in a place called Jalameh, what today is Israel. What they uncovered over the following eight years was an unprecedented trove of artifacts relating to the production of glass. In addition to the extraordinary artifacts and objects, this excavation was a tremendous breakthrough in our understanding of historical glassmaking and the economic and societal conditions behind the decorative arts of the late Roman Empire. Uh, And you, Lucky Curious Objects listeners, along with me, Lucky Curious Objects host, are about to get a special look at these fantastic discoveries. Because now, after decades of research and analysis, The Corning Museum, led by curator Catherine Larson, has opened an exhibition devoted to the results of that excavation and the revelations that followed it. It's called Dig Deeper, Discovering an Ancient Glass Workshop. And I'm delighted to be in Corning and have the opportunity to speak with Catherine about the show, which includes not just artifacts uncovered in the excavation, but a deep look at the process of discovery. There's also a companion exhibition about the fuel and furnaces that undergirded the production at Jalamet, complete with a replica of an ancient wood-fired furnace. There's even a comic book about the excavation. It's a multi-sensory experience that emphasizes the Corning Museum's dedication to hands-on interaction. And I'm thrilled to be able to share all of this with Curious Objects listeners. Uh, I'm particularly thrilled to do so with the guidance of Catherine Larson, the curator behind these exhibitions, who is here with me now. Catherine, could you just briefly give us a sense of how transformative this Jalame excavation was for for scholars' understanding of ancient glass production?
1: Hi, Ben. Yeah, it's great to be here and so glad you could come out to see the exhibition. The Jalame excavation was transformative because it was really the first scientific excavation of a glass workshop from antiquity. Um, so at the time, 60 years ago, when they set out to do these excavations um, and locate the site, most of what was known about ancient glass production was known from texts, um, ancient sources, which may or may not have been accurate, may or may not have had firsthand experience of glassmaking itself, um, and sort of select archaeological discoveries that had been turning up in the previous sort of half century of work. Um, None of which were sort of found by people who knew much about glass or had set out to undertake. They had different questions of what they were discovering Mm. and kind of found the glass workshops by accident. So what made the Jalame excavations so important was that they were led by people who cared about glass and wanted to know about glass. And in fact, the people involved in those excavations always said, we're not out to find beautiful objects. We're not out to find, you know, amazing treasures. We're really out to understand the way this craft worked Mm. in antiquity. And they were really at the cutting edge of that moment in archaeology when archaeologists were starting to ask more questions like that. It wasn't really just about finding cool stuff. It became much more about understanding antiquity and answering specific research questions about the way things worked in the past. So John May and that project was really the first to do it. And in the 60 years since, we've learned so much more. So the, the opportunity for this exhibition was really to almost revisit that site and say, how can we better understand the site with all the tools at hand today? So even though it start, takes our starting point in the excavations of the 1960s, Uh, we really wanted to carry that story forward and think about all that we've learned about ancient glass production since then.
0: Right, so let's talk about what was actually happening at this site. Um, What kinds of objects were being made at at the workshop at Jalameh?
1: Well, one of the things we've realized since the 60s is that the Jalameh workshop is extraordinary because it was one of the few from antiquity that was both making glass from raw materials and transforming that raw glass into objects, so blowing glass, shaping glass. Um, so they were doing both those things. Um, so the making glass from raw ingredients, um, they were, it's a whole process from antiquity. And we know that this part of the world was an important center of glass production, of glass making, um, for a long period of time. So those, one of the things they were doing was combining sand from the nearby Ballas river, um, which contains a lot of silica, which is of course what most, glass composition is, is silica. Um, and they melted it at high temperatures with a mineral from Egypt called natron um, that was mined at um, in a particular area called Wadi Natron. Um, natron was traded around the Mediterranean at this point in time. Uh, so they made combined those materials at high temperatures to for days, if not weeks, to make glass.
0: You were just telling me earlier about uh, natron being the origin of the N-A in the <laughs> we all know N-A-C-L, the chemical uh, letters for, for salt.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. your little trivia fact courtesy of of, of the glass museum. Yeah, that's where Natron comes from.
0: So the workshop here was active in the latter part of the fourth century. Um, and tell me, just in broad strokes, what was the political situation? Um, uh, th- this is modern day Israel and Lebanon, this sort of region of the Middle East. And. Um, What was happening politically in that region at this time, and and how would that have affected business?
1: The second half of the fourth century was really a period of fragmentation throughout the Mediterranean. Rome had governed the entire, controlled the entire Mediterranean basin and beyond for more than 400 years at this point. But in what we've historically called the sort of crises of the late third century, um, around 300, the Emperor Diocletian and others sort of started to divide the emperor, that, that huge empire, which was becoming increasingly difficult to govern and administrate, divided it into two halves, um, which later became the Western and Eastern Roman empires. And the Western empire went on to kind of have its own historical trajectory. Um, and here in the East, where the site, this workshop site was located, um, eventually sort of remains became the late Roman empire and eventually the Byzantine empire. Um, so the Jalame glass glassworkers were actually governed not from Rome, but through, from the city of Constantinople, which became Istanbul in modern Turkey. Constantinople, of course, was founded by Constantine, the emperor who had died about a generation before the Jalome glass workshop act was active. And Constantine did a lot of really critical things to change the future direction and lead us into sort of the period of late antiquity, uh, which we right at the beginning of when the Jalame workshop operated, including things like legalizing Christianity throughout the empire. So the Jalame glassworkers might have seen such things as increased pilgrims coming from various parts of the emperor through their area to make it to the holy site of Jerusalem. Um, they were really in this moment of transition. And yet what they represent is the tradition and continuity of craft that have been active in that part of the world for hundreds of years before and would continue to be active for hundreds of years later.
0: So there's one particular piece I want to draw listeners attention to, or really it's a category of pieces um, which we're calling our curious object uh, for today and it's it's a beaker um, in a conical shape um, decorated with uh, little blue dots and it's it's sort of a surprising object to look at and, and very, very beautiful. Um, and, and a number of these pieces are included in the exhibition. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the context behind those pieces. But but for starters, tell me about the life cycle of these objects, um, starting from from the very beginning, from the raw materials you were telling us about all the way through their production and use.
1: Right. So one of the reasons I picked this object is because it is such an iconic object of the Jalome workshop. So they would have made the ingredients, like made the glass to form the object from the raw ingredients close nearby. Um, and as you mentioned in your description that the color, there's two colors in it. So most of what the Jalame workshop was producing was monochrome utilitarian pieces. And then the, they made a few pieces that, you know, have Richer colors. So this particular object um, was likely decolorized. So the main body of it is colorless, um, which is actually not. A lot of people think that glass is naturally colorless. It's not true. If you actually look at a thicker piece of glass and off, like a window glass, you'll see that it has a little bit of a blue or a green tinge, that's due to the iron in the sand. So the glassmakers would have added. Um, uh, manganese to the glass batch to actually decolorize it to give it like to take away that counteract that iron impurity mm-hmm. and to get those blue dots they added copper to the glass to give it that really rich um, dark blue color to make those dots mm-hmm. uh, and then they would have shaped it into that conical form um, we're not exactly sure how they there's a couple ways they can make that form. Glass kind of wants to take on that elongated shape when it's hot. They may have made it with the aid of a mold that you drop, suspend the molten glass into the, a really simple conical mold. Or it could have just swung it around sort of freehand to mm-hmm. elongate that shape. Mm-hmm. Then the vessel was cooled or annealed. Um, glass has is subject to thermal stress. so It has to cool slowly, um, perhaps buried in an insulating material like olive pits or in a smaller secondary furnace that was kept at a lower temperature and cooled down overnight. And then after it was cooled, what makes this object really interesting, and it's a technique that's used widely in ancient glass production, is that instead of sort of finishing the rim while the vessel's hot, they used a cold working technique to finish the rim that is we, archaeologists call cracking off, uh, modern glass artists call it hot popping <laughs> because they use thermal, which is sort of a, a funny term. Um, they use, they take advantage. So if you can imagine the glass kind of broke off the end of the blowpipe. It's cooled. It's still got almost a lid on the top. It's not open at the top at this point in time. So to get that opening, uh, you apply thermal stress to the glass, um, Today's glassmakers use a blowtorch to do that. They do a light score to kind of create a line that they want it to break along, then apply a blowtorch to add heat to it, and eventually it pops off Mm -hmm. due to that thermal pressure. Um, Of course, they don't have blowtorches in antiquity, so we've been, like, archaeologists have been trying to figure out for decades and working with current, like, with modern craftsmen and modern glass artists to figure out how this could have been done, and there's a few few methods. One is to submerge half and half in hot and cold water. If you've seen kind of wine bottle breaking, sometimes it's mm-hmm. the same kind of principle. Um, but another one that we were able to pull off for the exhibition that we were able to film and we play the video in the exhibition is wrapping a hot string of glass, of molten glass around that edge of the vessel to give it that thermal shock. Um, and then a light tap will just crack off the top and it if you can do it well, which it takes a little bit of skill, um, you end up with a really nice, clean edge.
0: So who were the craftspeople working in this um, in this workshop at Jalame? And um, I mean, what do we know about them? Were they, were they very well off?
1: We don't know a lot. Um, and most of what we know is, or think we know, or think we might know, is due to comparative evidence from other mm-hmm. traditional glass workshops. So we don't know. Some really simple questions, like how many people would have worked there? I'd say it's anywhere perhaps between three and 30. Um, so not a huge workshop, not an industrial workshop. Um, we don't know the relationship between those people. We don't know if they were family relationships that were passed down, that, with the knowledge passed down over time, or if they were relationships of a master and enslaved person um, a relationship. Um that the knowledge was passed that way and, or through a more apprentice system or some combination thereof. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we just don't have that kind of documentation from antiquity. Uh, But we do know that the glass workshop, this Jolimai glass workshop was short lived. Um, We know through ceramic evidence and coin evidence that it probably didn't operate for more than 10 or 15 years at the very most. Um, and since the Jalamei excavations, we've found dozens of other glass workshops in the same part of the world. Of course, we know this is an important glass making area in antiquity. Um, but what we think is happening is that the glass workers are moving around, probably following fuel sources um, throughout, just basically down the road to get to new uh, fuel sources to be able to exploit. So there's some kind of continuative tradition that extends over a long period of time, but the mechanisms for that, we don't know a lot about right now.
0: What do we know about the supply chain for bringing the raw materials for this production and the fuel, uh, all the necessaries um, to to the workshop itself?
1: So Natron would have had to come up from Egypt, of course. um, And because it was actually a widely traded good in antiquity, it wasn't just used for glass production glass, people like to think it's the most important <laughs> thing for us. Um, but in fact, even dating back to the first millennium BCE, it's used as a preservative. It was used in mummification. It was used because it's sodium, basically. So it's used the same way that salts are used mm-hmm. today. Uh, so it was actually a widely traded good and probably came up with merchants and then was purchased by the local glass workers. They probably mined their own sand from right nearby. And that was that Concentration of the great sand, um, which contained the right amounts of silica, as well as probably limestone—that um, is what makes glass stable. So that they could get away with just making glass from two ingredients and didn't have to do a lot of cleaning of the sand mm. to make it a uh, good sand, good material for glass making. Um,
0: so is that what makes this region so important for glass production in the periods? The availability of those resources.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in fact, later on in antiquity, when people, um, as we talked a little bit about the political history and the decline of the trade routes, even connecting east and western halves of the Roman Empire, uh, as glass, reach, glass from the Levant, from the area that's now Israel and Lebanon, went as far as Britain in antiquity and in the peak of the Roman period, supported by those Roman supply chains and trade networks, And then throughout late antiquity, as those trade networks start to deteriorate, we see that glass is not reaching Western Europe in nearly the same amounts and really declines. And they're forced to just recycle glass that's found nearby or recycle earlier glass and not be able to bring in the new glass. And it continues throughout the into the Venetian period Mm -hmm. where the Venice is bringing in raw materials actually from the Islamic world, from the exact same part of the world we're talking about. Today to supply their glass houses during the renaissance a
0: thousand years later yep. yeah Interesting. so um getting back to the production process um can you just explain for us the difference between primary and secondary mm. glass making
1: sure so primary glass making is the process of actually fusing glass from the raw ingredients of sand and natron in this case so your silica source and your sodium source and then sometimes you might put in something like lime as a stapler, your colorants as well. Secondary glass making is the process of transforming that raw glass into finished objects. So raw glass from primary workshops, which were concentrated in Egypt and the Levant um, throughout much of antiquity was traded broadly. Secondary glass blowing workshops were located throughout the empire and its vestiges. Because it's of course a lot easier to trade a big chunk of raw glass than it is to transport a nice finished glass vessel. <laughs> As anyone
0: with kids can tell you, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, the packing of glass before the styrofoam and bubble wrap was a little bit tricky. You yeah, use straw yeah, and other things. Yeah. But you imagine transporting a really beautiful glass piece by donkey or ship over long distances. So that's one of the reasons that most cities would have had a glass blowing workshop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at made they were doing both they were doing both so that's what's really one of the things that's really interesting about that site is that they're making those glass from Iran greens but they're also blowing glass to provide local supply local markets um, for those local household consumer goods that middle class folks um, they weren't really making luxury high-end wares for the emperor and the elites of society—they were making things for daily use.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk about that a little more. Um, in the context of these conical beakers, um, which you know were, were made with experience and care, um, but you're saying that the uh, buyers for these objects—we're the, not talking about the upper crust in society necessarily. Tell me more about um, who, who the target audience was for a workshop like Alamy.
1: They would have been primarily selling to people like merchants, small-scale far- small farmers and landowners, retired soldiers, formerly enslaved people. There's a lot of discussion about what a Roman middle class would have looked like, um, sort of the people between the peasants and the like, high end. But it's clear that um, one of the things that made the Roman Empire successful is that they were able to support this sort of mid-tier of society. And those are really the people who were able to buy ancient glass, like the types of vessels that were made at mm-hmm. the Jalame workshop. Um, and we know from excavating towns, villages, farmsteads, that glass was really common in these areas and is discarded quite regularly. It wasn't guarded like a precious object.
0: Right, so these weren't necessarily family heirlooms that um, you would have tried to, to, you know, gone to some length to maintain for your children and grandchildren and so on. Maybe there, I mean, what would be the analogy in contemporary use? It's more like the, the, you know, the pieces you just have in your cabinet.
1: Yeah, it's like your day, like what you eat dinner on every day. Um, you know, it's an interesting, I did a project, a few, we have very limited knowledge about what, the cost of glass was in antiquity. In fact, the only real document we have is known as Diocletian's Price Edict that dates to that period around 300, I think 304 is the exact year. Um, So Diocletian is the one who divided the empire into two parts. One of the things he did to kind of increase stability was set a price list because there was rampant inflation. And so he said, okay, here's the maximum prices that you can charge for things, um, including glass. We, of course, don't really know how closely that edict was followed, um, but it's one of the bench posts we have. So at one, some people have gone through and kind of calculated based on that, like how much glass would have cost mm. um, and extrapolated at today's dollars, like a glass, average glass vessel, like the ones made at Jolomei probably would cost about 30 or $35. OK. So, you know, it's not um, it's not the most precious thing. It's not the least precious thing. It's mm-hmm. somewhere sort of in the middle, and we do see that they would have been valued in some way because a lot of glass is deposited in burials um, in this part of the world, in particular. That it's part of those burial goods that accompany you into the afterlife. Yeah. Um. So,
0: tell me a little more about this: the distribution of these goods. Um. We so we have a workshop that's both taking raw materials and uh, making glass out of it, and then is also taking that glass and forming it into consumer goods. Um, and all that's happening within one site, uh, presumably operated by the same person or group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, after the production of the consumer goods, uh, is there a gift shop at the workshop? <laughs> or how, how do these items, are, are there merchants,
1: are there re- yeah.
0: retailers? How do these eventually make their way into
1: consumers' hands? That's a great question, um, and we don't know specifically about the Jalame workshop. When they excavated it back in the 1960s, uh, a lot of, they found a sort of high temperature area where they think the glass was fused, but then the, that workshop was basically leveled by later occupation, and uh, all the glass refuse was dumped over the side of the hill. So that's mm-hmm. what the archaeologists found later. From other sites, we know that glass would have been sold, could have been sold in urban areas um, right next to the glass workshop. So we've got there's a workshop um, from um, Beit Shion, which is also in modern Israel. So not all that far away from the May workshop it was destroyed by an earthquake. And in that workshop, it's clear they, they were making glass, blowing glass and then selling it right nearby. There's mm-hmm. glass-on shelves that have basically kind of fallen down in that earthquake. Um, Dallame was probably a semi-rural area, so that would have been merchants who came through, maybe picked up those glass-on donkeys and sold it, sold it out mm-hmm. to markets. And these
0: beakers we've been talking about, these mm-hmm. conical beakers, once they did make it into consumers' hands, um, what were they actually used for? They're, they're not very practical for sort of setting down at the table at dinner. They're conical. You know, they won't stand up on their own. Um,
1: what were they actually used for? We're lucky with the conical beakers in that it's one of the few forms of glass from antiquity that we actually have pretty good iconographic evidence for how they would have been used. Um, so there's two threads to this. That is why I say they're probably used for both lighting and for drinking. So one of the pieces of evidence that we have that they were used for lighting is a mosaic, which is a floor mosaic from a synagogue in Tiberias, which is not also in modern Israel and not that far away from Jalameh. So this floor mosaic from Tiberias shows conical, clearly glass because they're transparent, Um, conical beakers, just like the one that we're talking about today, set as lights in a menorah. And you can see the little flames coming out of them, uh-huh. so it's the like the lit menorah. So ambiguous. Yeah, right, right. Clearly used for lighting. They would have been filled with oil, and that would have burned. Um, and in fact, the fourth century is right when we see the beginnings of glass used as lighting to light churches and sacred spaces as well as homes. Um, so the conical beakers are one of the first pieces of glass that are unequivocally used in this way. Mm-hmm. And yet, we also have a wall painting from Ostia outside of Rome that shows the exact same form of conical, clearly glass, clearly transparent objects that there's a set of uh, clearly kind of Roman gentlemen with names who are toasting each other with these glasses. So they're clearly using them for drinking.
0: I hope they washed them first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Before the light, yeah, between the lighting. <laughs> you know, I always say that it's really, oh, there's so many of these drinking vessels from, glass drinking vessels from antiquity that have these rounded bases on the bottom. I always say if I could travel back in time for like five minutes and mm. solve one question, it would be how these things were used because it's so different from how we think about drinking cups today that we yeah, always have yeah. to set them down flat on a table.
0: Yeah. That's interesting to think about. And, um, and the fact that there are actually visual depictions of them from antiquity Uh you know, it helps with the speculation because it limits the range of possibilities. Boy, it does seem unorthodox. Um, it's not what we would think of as, as a drinking vessel today. Yeah. So it
1: and invites they... sort
0: of your imagination to think about, um, you know, what that reflected about the way these people were going through their daily lives.
1: It's always a good reminder that the past is not what you expect and mm-hmm. there are things that are so different about what we sort of take for granted today that weren't always true in the way people lived yeah. in the past.
0: So were any of these beakers found intact on on site at Jelmey?
1: No, just fragments and we've got waste materials and other things that are what tell us that the beakers like this were made on site. Little tiny fragments. They're really nice archeologically because those blue dots are very diagnostic. It's Mm. unequivocal when you find one of those things, what it belonged to. So there's no intact ones that were found at Jalame, but they're found um, throughout the region, um, including in museum collections like ours. So actually, sort of feature object that we're looking at today is actually from our collection. So a lot of these pieces ended up in museum collections because they had been included in burials, um, and it made it into the antiquities market in the early 20th century.
0: And uh, were there any other intact pieces at Jalame?
1: Just one tiny little bottle, (laughs) Uh not even bottle, like little jar is really the best way to describe it. It was the only intact piece from the site because, of course, we talked about they would have all the nice completed pieces were sold or sent away. So probably what we're getting are the broken pieces, the wasters, the things that failed um, and then are eventually discarded on the site.
0: So I want to work our way toward the waning day, the waning years or days of the operation of this workshop and what happened as it started to shut down. And I think to do that, we need to talk about the furnace um, where they actually produced the heat for all of this glass making work. Um, What was this furnace like and how did they keep it fueled?
1: Well, they never found remains of a glass furnace, like a glass blowing furnace at Jolomey. In fact, it was one of the big questions that the archeologists had in the 1960s was they'd found this high heat area and they couldn't quite figure out how it would have worked as a glass blowing furnace. So for the evidence for this, we have to turn to other sites that have been found subsequently. Um, and likely it would have been a either a round furnace, a keyhole shaped furnace, or a small rectangular furnace. Not very big, probably um, enough for at most two or three glass blowers to sit around and work around. Um, and it would have been made from a semi-organic material like a mud brick or a daub, which is made from sort of refired ceramic, straw and organic materials that are combined together. Um, and it's a really common building material in antiquity used to make all kinds of things. Our team here in Corning has actually tried our hand at making one of these things um, and found that the daub management was actually the hardest part of it. Mm. Um, and they were fueled by wood. So the furnaces were primarily fueled by wood, maybe olive pits and other material as well. Um, didn't have to go get coal or charcoal to create these. Um, But that wood fuel was really a huge driving economic factor of where these furnaces were located and the lifespan they had. Even materials of sand and natron are not used in nearly the same volume as that wood was necessary to keep these furnaces at a high enough temperature to melt glass um, over the period of time that it took to produce objects. Mm
0: -hmm. So what, they deforested the area for as far from the workshop as was practical, and then closed up and moved to the next patch of woods.
1: Yeah, essentially that's what we think. So we've seen the John workshop probably didn't operate for more than 10 or 15 years. And all these other dozens of workshops that we found seem to follow the same period span of occupation that none of them operated for a very long time. And so that's exactly what we think is that they had to keep moving in order to follow the fuel sources and let the forests regenerate before they were able to come back be and exploit those same forests again.
0: Right, and I understand that there were no glass making tools found at this site, which is maybe a further indication that this wasn't just a business shutting down and leaving the detritus behind. This was a business moving along to the next location. Right, exactly. So I think it's clear enough that um, the Jalme excavation revealed a great deal of information about the process of, of glass making the period. But um, what did that excavation teach and, and what is it continuing to teach us about um, society and, and culture and, and the daily life of the people around this, uh, this workshop?
1: Well, one of the things that it teaches us is that glass was really a common material that was available for a wide segment of society, that there was a market for these daily household wares um, that could be sustained locally. Um, It also tells us a lot about the trade and the economic environment at this particular juncture in time of this kind of key transitional moment in Mediterranean history from the sort of dominance of the Roman Empire to the sort of decline of these trade networks and the shrinking of the areas of influence um, in terms of where the Jalame glass was reaching. Um, there's a lot of really great, exciting work that's coming out of the scientific community in terms of looking at provenance origins of where this glass is coming from.
0: Tell me a little about the, the background behind this exhibition and, and where the material uh, is drawn from and. Um, And how has the uh, Israeli Antiquities Authority been involved in that?
1: A lot of the material from the excavation was brought back to Corning in the 1960s by our chief scientist at the time, Dr. Robert Brill. Brill had all these questions about how glass was made that he wanted to answer using scientific techniques. So all the things that I talked about, about the sand and the natron, those were all really demonstrated and proved by Brill for the first time. So Brill had all these questions, and he brought a lot of this material back Um, to Corning from Israel in the 1960s. And when I started work at Corning in 2016, as an ancient glass specialist who had learned about the Jalame workshop in the course of my studies, uh, I was so excited to see this material for the first time and thought this was really, this could be a really great exhibition that celebrates the discoveries from this Mm -hmm. workshop. So that was where that sort of came from. The exhibition has also given us the opportunity to work directly with the Israel Antiquities Authority uh, in to work on getting those objects back to Israel. Uh, They always came here even when Brill brought them in the 60s, was never intended to be permanent, and so we've built up that relationship with the Israel Antiquities Authority um, in hopes to be able to send those pieces back And to start to build that relationship, we're actually able to borrow quite a few materials from the IAA to support the exhibition. So materials from the site itself, as well as from other excavations in the region that when paired with materials from our collection, we're able to really tell this holistic story about glass production in this part of the world at that time.
0: What you're hearing now is the sounds of the replica furnace that the Corning glassmakers constructed according to ancient designs and materials. One of the unique things about the Corning Museum is the presence of working craftspeople, experts in glass blowing, who have unique insights into the work of ancient glassmakers. After all, as one of Corning's craftspeople told me, If you could take an ancient glassmaker from Jalame and teleport them to today's Corning Museum 2,000 years later, they could sit down at the bench and make glass in pretty much the exact same way. The core process was so effective, it really hasn't had to change very much. And that gave Catherine Larson an opportunity that few curators have to learn about the historic craft behind the works they study from people who are actually practicing that craft I'm interested in, uh, you've mentioned at a couple of points, the work that you've done with uh, craftspeople today to recreate uh, an ancient uh, furnace and to do some of the, recreate some of these glassblowing techniques. Um, What have you learned through collaboration with these people? I mean, it's one of the interesting things I think about the Corning Museum is how it brings together uh, history and, and research and craft all in the same place. Uh, what fruit has that borne in terms of the the Jalame excavation?
1: I think it's one of the things that makes ancient glass studies really special is the willingness of glass archaeologists and contemporary glassmakers, glassblowers, um, who care about the history of their craft. Um, for archeologists and glass artists to work together to answer some of these key questions. Um, And you really learn by doing, right? Through this period process of experimental archeology. span So Corning's built this wood-fired furnace replica that we're not the first to do something like this, but uh, we're some of the first to be able to demonstrate it publicly in the United States. We've got a great series of demonstrations happening this summer. Um, And we've really learned that even though The process of what happens at the end of the blowpipe is largely unchanged and our glassmakers can replicate those pieces really quite easily. The whole environment of that ancient workshop is quite different from what you see in a modern contemporary glassblowing environment. Those small scale wood furnaces, the fact that you would have used the same furnace to heat the glass and reheat the glass and shape the glass. and even that you would have been in a seated position in front of one of these small-scale furnaces, rather than moving around a lot more actively. Um, and you can you really develop a different relationship with the material, watching in those ways, and also appreciation for the fact that you can't just turn a knob and get your natural gas at the exact right level to get dial in your temperature to exactly. 2053 degrees you have to work closely with the person an individual who is stoking the furnace who's giving all that wood into the furnace to dial in the right level of heat to do what you want to do so it's a much more dynamic process and you have a really different relationship with the
0: material yeah i think about that often with with uh silversmithing in the 17th 18th century is when applying the correct solder means getting a very specific temperature Hmm. and uh of course there is no thermometer to tell you when you've arrived at that temperature you have to judge it by looking at the color of the metal it's uh, this incredibly sensitive and subtle skill um i imagine that these glassmakers had a sort of similar skill set in their their repertoire
1: that's a really interesting parallel i we have been a little bit of slaves to our little thermocouple (laughs) to to like see what the temperatures the furnace is at and When I took my turn uh, stoking the furnace last summer, you know, I'd kind of rely on looking at that and say, oh, the temperature is inching down, time to add more wood. Um, But folks who have been working at these furnaces, these wood replica style wood furnaces for a long time, say that I've done exactly what you said. They don't use, they hardly use their Mm -hmm. thermometers Mm -hmm. anymore. They really are responding to the material instead of Mm -hmm. using the modern tools. And it's just training yourself to work in a different way than we're used to working as people in the 21st century. Well, I'm
0: excited to go see this all for myself. Um, Thanks so much for the insight, uh, Catherine Larson. And uh, I hope listeners will come and see the show for themselves.
1: Me too. Thanks for being here, Ben.
0: Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Dalati, with social media and web support from Sarah Bellotta. Sierra Holt is our digital media assistant. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller.